0: Hey guys, this is Emmett. I am here with your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. And today I've got a great guest. I've got Micah Meadowcroft from the American Conservative. What's up, Micah? Hey,
1: Emmett. Thanks for having me on. Good to be here.
0: So Micah wrote a piece, you wrote a piece that was called We Can Win, right?
1: We're going to win. We're
0: going to win. Right. Yeah. Even better.
1: <laughs> Even um, better. Yes. So
0: I guess for our listeners, would you mind telling them who the we is? In other words, who you're talking to and what you hope to win or can right. We, sure, or we'll win? Right. Sure. Absolutely.
1: I write for, I think a kind of small, well, small town's the wrong word, but people who think of themselves as normal Americans. That's, that's who I believe that the American conservative magazine Rights for. That's why I'm in DC is basically to do the run the interference here in the Capitol so that the kind of communities that I grew up in, which is, you know, to put it in specifics, is kind of religious, countercultural, you know, red pockets and blue states type of communities, so that they feel like they have a voice here at the national level. And so I wrote this little blog post based on Tanner Greer's piece. He had written on how culture wars are long wars that you really have to think in terms of cohort change, generational change, and it's hard to convince people who are already in positions of power or comfort to change their mind about the world, that their worldview is pretty much set. Uh, They have lots of incentives for things to stay the same. So if you want radical change of any kind, then you're options really are investing in the next generation obviously historically the american left has understood that much better than the american right there's a degree to which conservatism as a as a descriptor already implies a certain hesitance to behave in kinds of you know radical change ways obviously and so basically i think one of the defining features of this moment is the realization by a lot of people who would describe themselves as conservatives in some sense or another, that they're losing and have been losing for a long time. And so my post was simply to say that we're the ones, and we here being people who care about a certain conception of the human person and think that like normalcy is something worth pursuing and cultivating, that we're the ones investing in long-term institutions, we're the ones investing in alternate forms of education, um, we're the ones who are part of churches that themselves uh, as a... Broad body, of the church will persist, or religious groups otherwise also tend to persist multi-generationally, and so because we're engaged in this kind of generational transfer, time is on our side. And really, I think doomerism or blackpilling or demoralizing behavior and, and rhetoric is really unhelpful right now. Now, it's important that some of those kinds of critiques that people like Curtis Yarvin, who responded to my piece make, uh, be made, especially here in DC, that the comfort of the conservative political status quo be shaken up as it was under the Trump administration and under the whole Trump moment. So I think that my piece was really just a kind of lob of optimism and just, and I got some positive feedback from exactly the kinds of people that I I write for. They were just happy to feel encouraged and happy to feel like they're fighting the good fight at home. Someone's fighting the good fight out here. And so I think it it speaks to this, I mean, as you, you know, exhaust, right? Your podcast itself is a recognition that this moment is one that feels like we've reached a decadent stagnation. Lots of people have different angles by which they describe it. Um, But I think from like a simple reflection on (laughs) human beings as biological creatures, like we do need to think in terms of multi generational, uh, in in sense of dis, you know having descendants and, and there being a future and and the the political fights at the moment have to happen for like people to have the space to do that to have children and and to pass on their traditions to their children. But that's not an impossible task, and and I think gains can really be made. And so I'm, I'm comfortable saying we're going to win because I think I'm part of a community that believes in a certain fundamental idea of what humanity is. And so if we're right, then that will persist regardless of circumstances. And, and so it's not really a political solution. Um, it's not talking about a political solution. And so that's, that's where the optimism comes from.
0: Totally. Well, I'm interested in this idea of the the specific human conception because we've been doing a long series here, mostly for our Patreon listeners, going through, as carefully as we can, McIntyre's After Virtue. Terrific. Um, so we've been having a lot of conversations about what a specific idea of the human might be. And this was actually just a reflection we had on our latest American canon episode on Flannery O'Connor's Good Man is Hard to Find. Great. So I was wondering if you could tease that out a little bit and be specific for us. Like, what's this sure. community you come from and what is this vision?
1: Yeah, so I'll just I'll contextualize it in biographical terms. I grew up in a classical Christian school, so that's the the classical Christian schooling movement kind of got its kickstart in 1980. A bunch of parents that would otherwise probably have been homeschoolers were inspired by Dorothy Sayers' Tools of Learning to uh, explore the possibilities of recapturing a certain kind of. It's an anachronistic project, admittedly, but it, the attempt is to take the best of the scholastic tradition and the humanist traditions in education and especially the ways in which it was sort of refined uh, in the glory days of the British Empire and the prep school system of that time and built around the trivium of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And so what that implies is a sort of neo-Aristotelian, neo-scholastic, Thomistic account of the human person as a certain kind of animal. Obviously, the traditional accounts would be like a political or a rational animal, the Christian account adds in that we're destined, you know, we have an eternal soul and we're made in the image of God and destined for a particular eternal end. And so having that kind of baseline anthropology implies a bunch of things about how you approach education and life in the world. And I mean, I think McIntyre does a wonderful job of talking about how we lost that and the ways in which the various crises within kind of the attempts to sort of secularly define some of these or retain some of these moral insights, kept you know failing, and then each each successive attempt to solve the problem of the prior attempt to solve the problem, uh, you, you stripped away more and more of any sort of metaphysical or you know fundamental anthropological claim, leaving us in this kind of mess of of emotivism and and sort of sheer individualism that I think characterizes so much of our our current moment.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. So I was Jesuit educated with a very strong great books thing. Got my master's later at St. John's. And I often lead seminars over at online great books. And one thing that has struck me in doing that work to the credit of the ideas that you're walking through in these two pieces is that the tradition survives you. If you do it right. You know, I think that that's something, you know, at first I was obviously horrified by what was happening with like the Princeton classics department or Mm -hmm, whatever mm -hmm. um that stuff's a bummer and it's sad to see faculty get cut especially when they're doing stuff like that the extent to which like the progressive left vision in academia lines up with the austerity vision of the financiers who run the academy uh, is worth noting there but the other thing that i realized on reflecting on it was like you know like online great books has more people than both saint john's campuses put together now
1: That's, that's fantastic. You know what I mean? Like, I was like,
0: so what am I really concerned about here? Right. Like, do I think that these works won't survive? I was like, well, I could just look back in history and Mm -hmm. say that they probably will.
1: Right. Well, I mean, to, to take the St. John's example specifically, I mean, and this ties well into my experience with classical education as well. Mortimer Adler's great books project um, influences both of those kind of movements. And, it, that was a adult continuing education thing. And that's a, a particular distinctive of American culture is that even as we hold, I think, we've, hold, we've held classical education or great books education or liberal arts education in a certain kind of skepticism eventually over the course of the 20th century at a low level, like we don't expect much of our high school students and middle schoolers in general. There is a certain recognition of the lack or has been historically in, in American culture and a willingness to put in the work later in life. And, and we kind of have this sort of autodidactic, but also willingness to find teachers pioneer, you know, like intellectual pioneerism built in, I think to the American ethos. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's a key part of all of this, as you say, like this exists apart from us and then people discover it. And each person has that opportunity to have that encounter of, of wonder and a humility before a kind of this realization that humanity has had its, this conversation with itself and with its God throughout history. And is, it's going to continue to happen regardless of whether we participate. And so, I mean, this might be jumping straight into the weeds in a way that isn't helpful, but I think like the one serious threat or question, and this is maybe where Yarvin comes from with his, you are going to lose, because of his background in programming and technology is technology is the question of technology not to get too Heideggerian too quickly um but <laughs> the, yeah 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 <laughs> the, the, like they like modernity you know I mean whether you want to start it well there's always been a modernity it kind of we can describe the modern attitude as, as appearing popping up throughout human history but um this account of Nature and human and like human beings or human creatures, well, human beings no longer being human beings, but just simply being human matter, um, being standing in, in in reserve in readiness for manipulation and and kind of structuring by design, you know, in the C.S. Lewis account in the abolition of man, this is this is the reduction of man as more matter for other men. You know, pa- man's growing power over nature is in fact some men's growing power over other men. I think the technological question. To what degree can we, in fact, erase the sort of essential features of the human person or the human being or the human animal? That's the really fundamental one. And if you are concerned that it is possible to, like, that we have, in some sense, um, built a god beyond our, like a small g, you know, if we've built an idol beyond our own control now, right, if we are no longer in charge of this thing we've unlocked in the in the internal logic of technology, then perhaps the danger is truly existential and perhaps these things can be erased and this fire can be extinguished. I happen to think that that's not quite true, that there are certain like hard limits on human ingenuity and certain hard limits on how much nature can be pushed around before nature wins, uh, it comes back with a vengeance, right? I mean, so I think to, to tie this to an interest that we share you and I, I mean, well, it sounds like we share a lot of interests, but another one would be, you know, in, on the environmental policy question and just how to think about environmental, environmentalism and ecology, right? If either we, well, so on the one hand, like a lot of the the kind of contemporary green movement is built on a certain idea of a, of a static nature that then can be manipulated. And, and so the, the need is to conserve that particular static, like, photograph of the natural order as it's supposed to be and whether it's kind of austerity measures or whatever there's the sort of pure maintenance and there's a there's a loss of the dynamism of ecology or the the dynamism of uh, the the whole biological system structure and i think that that's you know that's its own kind of arrogance because it's like the earth will survive us even if we kill ourselves. <laughs> like, um, something will persist, you know, it, either you, like, it's hugely adaptable. And, you know, if, if we end up driving ourselves into extinction, that's on us. That's not really, we haven't destroyed the environment. The environment at that point is destroyed think like, It will persist. Well, in, it's like that just,
0: old, it's that George Carlin bit about like nature's going to be fine.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. No, Yeah. It's like, we have the problem. So in the same is true, I think of, And so I think that gets at the broader technological question, which is just sort of have have we reached the point at which we are actually posing an existential risk to ourselves? Can we, can we commit mass cultural and biological suicide perhaps? But I think as long as we don't do that, then human nature wins out in some sense, or just like that you know, we will still be a certain kind of creature and we will still need to have children and reproduce and there will still be a future to plan for. And and so in my mind, conservatism is just holding that in right before your eyes as, as often as you can, as you think about prudential questions of politics. And it's simply saying like, we have received something from our ancestors. We should hold in trust that which is best in it, deferring to them in some sense, because um, we have such a limited time you know, time span of a single life in which to consider why things are the way they are. So that's this this Burkean or whatever deference, Chesterton sense, deference to to precedent. And then we have an obligation to our descendants to transmit that. So it's receive, hold, and transmit. And that to me is the essence of of conservatism and, and it's it's why I am willing to call myself a conservative still, even though I think like conservative conservatism or conservatives in the American political sense, is a pretty useless term at this point, broadly. There's not much worth conserving if we're just purely talking about cultural issues or, or, or the existing expression of you know American governance. Um, why bother conserving all that? Well, I'm conserving something much bigger and I'm concerned about something much bigger than, than just that.
0: Yeah. I mean, that last point you made, I think is great because it's something I've wondered. So, you know, full disclosure for people that don't know, Micah has edited me over at the American conservative for a piece I wrote on nuclear energy, which was sort of my formal defection from the left. Um, And I was very happy to place it there because I could sense a sort of overlap between what was going on there and what's been going on in my own head. And I agree that whatever being conservative means now, or it might be a useless term, just like sort of the left is a useless term, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Like Christopher Lash, I think, made the very astute point that the left is always trying to abolish things the market has already done away with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I would say that conservatives have, uh, in America, in my lifetime, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, have often have been trying to conserve things that the market has been selling downriver. Already. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. No, I would say, I mean, we're, we're both responding so obviously, left and right, as we use them in modern politics, emerge out of French parliament and literal seating arrangements. And then, uh, conservatism versus liberal were specific kind of, or like that language from the mid twentieth century was a response to the FDR New Deal regime and how to kind of whether you know are we. Freezing things where they are, or, or is there more progress to to kind of cultivate out of out of what had been built? But both of those are responses in in practice to techno capital. Is kind of a, a silly jargony way to describe it, but basically, this logic of technology, this logic of the market, which itself is a technology, and one of our most you know effective, clearly. Um, <laughs> whether you he, like it or not, that's true. Yeah, and and so you know exactly like libertarians aren't wrong to say like wow markets are so powerful and important they absolutely are, and so the the actual issue live question is are we going to allow structures and systems to grow beyond human scale and beyond human responsibility? Are we willing to divorce power and responsibility? And that framing is one I get from Romano Guardini, mid-century, mid-twentieth-century uh, Roman Catholic theologian that I really admire, and um, wrote on for in part for my master's thesis. But that I think I think that gets at the heart of the matter in a really clear way, which is that our power is growing, but our ability to assign human responsibility for said power seems to be slipping through our fingers, and so both the left and the right are attempting to find ways to preserve what's something about the human person in the face of that. I think traditionally the left's account is to say that this is an opportunity to keep stripping away the layers of of convention and and eventually even biology and and nature that, that restrain human choice. And traditionally the right, you know, being a kind of being in some sense defined by a willingness to accept, and then not only accept but also embrace hierarchies and difference. Its attempts has been has been to like freeze things in such a way that you can maintain existing ways of you know differentiations and, and orders, you know, capital O or law and order, et cetera. And I, I I do think that that is to the degree that it has been attached to partisan politics and to in some sense, both parties now are are small C conservative in a really useless way because they're trying to maintain the the structures. Well, the
0: reactionary, right? That's the difference, right? So if you have the receive, conserve, transmit idea of conservatism, then, I mean, it's sort of like the, so I've I've been trying to write this piece called For Promethean Conservatism. And I was returning to Aristotle uh, Mm -hmm. to think about that. And I was returning to the opening of the metaphysics. Mm -hmm. You know, all men desire to know. Yes, And then he has that really lovely part later on where he's just like, well, I mean, we receive some things, but one has to be more discerning. You can't mm-hmm. just embrace something because it's been given to you over right. time. You have to reckon with it there. And to me, I was like, that's what I think would differentiate a conservative from a reactionary is a reactionary is like status quo, whatever it is, that's what I'm defending. And that's where we get now. Whereas a conservative might have an evaluative principle um, mm-hmm. to Understand what is worth receiving, conserving, and then handing down. Right, you can't just take everything.
1: Right. (laughs) Though we should acknowledge that 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 I think reactionary is often also used in a historically contextualized way to describe people. Hundred percent. People are saying we took a wrong turn at a certain point, and 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 conservatism again defined in a sort of specific regime level political sense is useless because in fact it's part of the thing that we need to roll back or reject and react against.
0: I t- totally agree. And I appreciate the clarification there. I understand that I'm using it in idiosyncratic
1: yeah, but it's a way. useful way, um, but, it is, yeah, but <laughs> yeah. I think it is, it is a little, yeah, perhaps you know, it'd be a little confusing to some people perhaps.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And so I guess that's where I'm wondering, so I can sort of give you a perspective on like some of what I see going on on the left in terms of like what to do. First of all, no one has any ideas. No one really seems to want to be honest about the history of the left since the 60s and its departure mm-hmm. from labor and what that's going to mean. They're jockeying for position on a sinking ship because they're spot-welded to the Democratic Party and don't really know what to do about that. I mean, even more honest Marxists like Mike, Mike, uh, Mike Davis were willing to call it the barren marriage between labor and the Democrats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what I see is a great confusion about the relationship to the market or what it's going to mean, or what even a vision of human liberation might look like on the left. You talked about expanding choice. I think that that is definitely a strong tendency on the left that most overlaps with the libertarian instinct and with Mm -hmm. the anarchic instinct. Of course, there are other threads there that would say choice isn't an adequate definition of human freedom. Right. One might want to have more say or control over one's life. But even these debates seem totally muted and muffled out by just the worst of cultural debates and frankly, totally useless politics on the identity front. Mm-hmm. And it really does seem to cater to the status quo that's being defended by the sort of monoparty, I've heard the guys at Claremont call it, um, that make yeah. up the overlap between the Democrats and the Republicans. So how do you see the conservative relationship with the libertarians and the more market-oriented guys and how that's been changing? Because I've noticed some changes from when, let's say, I was growing up during the Bush years.
1: Right. So all these terms are loaded and all these terms have multiple generations of precedents. To get back to that kind of generational question, like these debates have happened over and over again and probably- There's a
0: genealogy here. Yes. And
1: they probably will happen in, in broadly repetitive and unconst- you know unconstructive ways though actually i think the quality of the debate has declined so if you if you go back to so uh, th- that was a bad preface to fusionism is the is the label for which most people reach when describing the kind of alliance between social conservatives i guess americanist talks i mean it was, it was a cold war thing and a libertarian kind of a market driven approach to to both economic development global economic development that was an important part of it um, as a kind of way to rebuild the world after the crisis of the world wars uh, that that was a pragmatic alliance, pragmatic barren marriage um, made well, not totally barren it got the, it did in fact get Reagan elected, but then it quickly became sclerotic. And I think I think that's a, a tendency that we've been dancing around or talking around already, which is that all of these things, instead of describing a disposition or a mode of thought or a certain account of the human person that would then motivate a certain agenda and, and, and kind of inform certain pragmatic or prudential political decisions have largely become creedal or you know, ideological factions and and, and, and teams, it's, it's, it's broken into these teams. And I mean, this is why like, for example, you have, We can now describe people as being post-left, which doesn't make any sense in the sense that from an attitude or from objectives, they're still leftists. But because the left has itself solidified to such a degree in its own alliance with partisan politics, there is something, there's something to to leave behind. And and I think the same is true of fusionism that basically social conservatives in particular uh, have lost over and over again, that every time... There has been a need to evaluate interests and priorities, either kind of um, American global hegemony or it's which goes hand in hand with the global market, um, that that has always ended up winning in, in in this in within kind of GOP politics for the last 50 years or so. And so I think what's happening now is that there's the recognition of that. And then there's just the really simple like populist, national populist recognition that those choices have been bad for normal Americans. Yeah, 100%. And so, yeah, so that the American working class, but even the American middle class have at every turn had the value of their assets inflated away, the value of their education in some sense also inflated away if everyone's getting a degree and if degrees are declining in kind of the amount of academic actual aptitude and work that they represent, then the race for credentialing accelerates that much more. And so I think the fissure in conservative American conservatism that we have seen since 2015 is a, well, A, I'll just say has always been there, but B is just the reaching of a kind of breaking point because I think after the wall came down and Bolshevik communism seemed to be fully repudiated, no one knew what to do. You know, winners have a hard time knowing what to do if you've spent your whole time fighting. Yeah, victory defeats thing. you. Yeah. And so everyone's maintained a kind of holding pattern and done things for their own its own sake. So have, have pursued power or wealth or wealth, which is a kind of power for its own sake, rather than having a sort of serious, robust account of why we do you know why, what governance is for, what citizenship is for. And so I think, yeah, it's going to get weirder before it gets better, uh, but I still think it might get better. I, that, that got scattered at the end.
0: But. No, I'm optimistic too. I mean, this is as much as we talk about, maybe optimistic isn't even the right word, but as much as we talk about why things don't feel possible on this podcast, I mean, really, it's a podcast about context. Mm -hmm. Right. The American pool for self-understanding as a nation and even as an individual is so shallow that John and I were like, we really just need to rethink a lot of priors. And like, we should probably turn that into a big project Mm -hmm. and talk to a lot of people because of that and to not limit to just one perspective, because everything that you said is something that most honest labor-oriented leftists I know would agree with. Obviously, there's mm-hmm. still going to be divides there. I'm not right. making it's like, um, it's all going to be okay account in terms of like alliances, right? Goodbye, like, Ju- yeah. Right, like Julius Crying when he, and him and Gladden Papin showed up at the Verso loft to debate Descent magazine a few years ago, and it was a shameful display from dissent. But crime was right, where he was just like, Wouldn't you rather have eternal, horrific, stupid debates over how much money we're going to give people to have families than like mm-hmm. whatever we're debating over now? Which I thought was a pretty good deal. No, it's like,
1: what is the money for if not yeah. for that, right? Yeah. Like, like <laughs> at the end of the day, we are a creature that needs to reproduce like, yeah. like, like, like all this other stuff is is trappings on top of just
0: right politics is the language of priorities right like yes. in terms of how we're going to rank these things And everything you said i've seen in the work of joel kotkin mike lind christopher caldwell's book which mm-hmm. i absolutely loved last year that was a game changer for me in addition to leftist Toure ray reed's book uh, toward freedom the case against race reductionism I think those should be read together. Um, It's a very good, like syncretic account of the last 60 years or so. Thanks for
1: the recommendation. Yeah, I'll have to look into that.
0: Yeah, it's short too, mercifully. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, what I'm wondering is, do we feel like there's some sort of new coalition on the horizon or some sort of changing of the guard in terms of moving out of an imperial Cold War posture into something else? I deeply want to believe that. And sometimes I worry I'm being seduced by what I want rather than Mm -hmm. facts on the ground.
1: I think that there's a strong desire for it. And there's also changing global realities that will in some sense force the question and make the options more stark. And my hope is that in with, you know, facing stark options, perhaps we'll, we'll choose better, but we'll see. Basically, I mean, 30 years ago uh, we chose to, again, no longer motivated by rebuilding Europe, we just kept doubling down on these globalization questions and so ended up building a rival in China. And so to have squandered a unipolar hegemonic moment like that, and now to face a, a genuine kind of potential for a multipolar world and, and to a large degree you know, Putin's Russia the EU, I mean, Germany is, is, is making moves in this direction very, very strongly. The rest of the world's already operating like we're in a post-American moment to some degree that well, at least they're recognizing that our dominance is limited, that we in fact, yes, uh, there's a tension here, right? Like the reason we have wasted so much blood and treasure on stupid adventurism in the Middle East is because in some sense we have a almost limitless capacity to do so, right? You can always throw more money at that.
0: Yeah. A wide margin the, for error makes for many mistakes.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and, and the military is in fact, very, very, very small. And so the kind of political cost of, of sending more troops is never that big because people don't really know active duty troops that are, you know, that like the armed forces are, are in fact, extremely, um, small part of, of the national consciousness. And so despite us kind of celebrating it in a lot of ways culturally um, and all that to say, we've operated like, the, like there's no, li- you know, in the same way as we have with the environment, we've operated like there's a limitless capacity to just keep extracting energy from this thing and then failed to put any back into the system. We've been an agent of chaos internationally rather than an agent of order. That's a controversial statement, but that's the kind of the American conservatives line versus, you know, that's one thing that differentiates us from other publications within the conservative movement here in DC. And so it's simple physics, right? If you take more energy out of the system than you put in, you're going to have entropy, you know, growing disorder. And so I think that growing disorder is coming to a head. We have the opportunity to basically pursue either kind of a global blob um, or or to recognize a distinctly american but limited presence in the world and and that's the sort of the choice that's facing us so the the monoparty you know the monoparty the uniparty the blob in the in the kind of national security state sense they or or the liberal international order in the sense of all the ngos or like the international monetary fund or the world health organization or the united nations or the eu there's a ton of institutional structure and incentives in place to just double down on this kind of global governance thing. And I think that's the wrong option. I don't think that serves any constituency. And it, in fact, just flattens human difference. It homogenizes the world and reduces kind of the opportunity for us to each become most fully ourselves, the opportunity for human, genuine human flourishing. Um, it doubles down on the kind of homo economicus reductionism. The other option, which I think the kind of interesting parts of the left and the interesting parts of the right are talking about, is accepting that there are going to be what you know historically have been called rogue states or bad actors, that that's just a part of reality, and that we can't expect global homogenization, nor should we, and that instead we should pursue in um, America that is distinctly and health, healthfully, healthfully American as possible and taking care of the people at home before we worry about the maintenance of a certain kind of global status quo. And it's that attitude that I see a growing constituency for, and it's always been there. I think, I think most Americans instinctively think that the relationship you're supposed to have with your, with your government is that they're there to protect you. And they're there to let you do to live the life that you've been told is normal in your in your own participation in that receiving, holding, and transmitting. But it's gonna be hard. It's gonna be it's gonna be really messy. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a whole political fight right there. I mean, so to your point about the interesting parts of the left and the interesting parts of the right, Philip Cunliffe, the scholar over at the podcast Alpha Bunga Bunga, just came out with a book called Cosmopolitan Dystopia which is, uh, he makes the controversial claim that um, uh, ISIS is sort of the dark mirror of global Northern cosmopolitanism because ISIS itself was cosmopolitan in its approach. He has an interesting walkthrough there, but he sort of talks about how sort of the default to American largesse created a context of no rules and total chaos that totally cut against the grain in terms of um, what the liberal order used to be which was like a nation states accountable more or less to the people Mm -hmm. that lived within them. Mm -hmm. And I feel like to bring it back to how we sort of began the conversation that everyone is walking around going, look, it doesn't seem like anybody who's in charge of anything is responsible for anything that they do. Like who's on the hook for what, you know, it's like, It is probably one of the most maddening things that I think anyone who pays attention experiences on a daily basis is that there's just this world of no
1: consequences. Right. And and yeah. So, so that divorce of power and responsibility, one of the consequences of it is a divorce or like the um, negation of any understanding of authority. Right. Because if you and I are in a family um, there's you know, like parents have authority over children or that might be controversial amongst some of your listeners, but I think that's true. Uh, and I don't, you, I don't think that'll be controversial amongst uh, our listeners to be honest. Uh, okay, good. Uh, glad to hear it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in some circles it is, or if, you know, if we're in a university, there's, you know, so, but that, that, that authority line is, is in reference to the family or if we're in a university, the professor has authority over the classroom. Well, that reference is, that that authority is in reference to the university. So there's a thing external to us that we are then situated in these relationships by that then tell us who has responsibility for what and what kind of care we have both for each other and for ourselves. The problem with the global system is emerging or has emerged is that its whole purpose seems to be to dilute any sort of externality Um, or or structure that's recognizable or legible. And so, of course, there's no responsibility because there's no recognized uh, external standard by which you could assess the obligations that anyone has to anyone else. And in fact, we celebrate the rejection of obligations and the rejection of any sort of given responsibilities. Um, To a large degree, culturally, we, we, we think that the empower you know we, we've sort of defined empowerment as as the shedding of those sorts of uh, priors and whether they're conventional or natural um <laughs> i mean to get really dorky but i think it, it fits the sort of other stuff you're doing going back to aristotle and things like that i mean we're re-entering you know this is true the whole 20th century but is is in an exciting way possible right now again nomos is becoming a convention is becoming more and more and more obvious. And our kind of options then are to either, I guess, sleepwalk into, it or not sleepwalk, but just sort of waltz into a kind of nihilism and say it's all convention, um, or to look for fusis and to say that, is there, a, is there a being and becoming that we can be, we can participate in and recognize and, and assess convention in light of, and and is that you know a way in which we can then refine, rediscover, clear the space for um, the emergence of, of the healthy human person? So uh, that's where the political and the philosophical meet for me.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's interesting, right? Um, the other day, Michael Millerman tweeted out: "Does America need to rediscover its founding, or commit to a refounding?" Which I thought was like a very interesting question. I had a very ambiguous response, which was return with a V to Plutarch.
1: So you're looking for statesmen, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's very uh, West Coast stressing of you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but I guess I've been thinking about it's. It's given me pause over the past few days to think about that because what I'm curious about is the fight over what America has been and what it can be, right? Mm-hmm. And the extent to which it will allow for that sort of outside perhaps metaphysical authority. Do you think that that's possible within the regime as we've constructed it? And I'm not saying, are you gonna advocate for a civil war revolution? That would be (laughs) uh, insane. But what I am asking is what I think is a thorny question about the nature of the founders vision and how it's been instantiated and then interpreted by us over time.
1: I think to put ourselves in context, you have the, Founding of the colonies. Uh, there's not a distinct founder, really, in, uh, which is interesting in and of itself. But you you have the emergence of a kind of organic Anglo-American culture in the thirteen colonies, and and they're able to absorb a certain degree of um, diversity in and of in there in that it's itself. And then you have the founding of 1776 and the kind of distillation of a particular political identity in those colonies. And and that was a controversial one. I mean, it was a much smaller faction within the colonies than um, I think we think of as it having been now. Um, There were a lot of Tories even then. And then you have the founding of 1789, which really was, I mean, the Constitutional Convention was a kind of of soft coup um, going in you know, ostensibly to fix the Articles of Confederation, but in fact, creating a new ruling regime for the colonies to to, to join voluntary involuntary you know again all of this has to be understood as having been elite activity so this gets at what yarvin's critique of me was because yarvin is writing regime level political analysis for people who think <laughs> probably mostly self-deludingly but who think that they can actually operate at that level or maybe maybe participate.
0: He cer- certainly um, graduated from sort of the internet porn addicts that he used to write for, right. which is how <laughs> I think I remember the <laughs> dawn of Yarvin being. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Grey Mirror is, is self-consciously a project for, as I said in my my follow-up piece, in my response to Yarvin, uh, Grey Mirror is self-consciously a a book for courtiers. It's, it's a new book of the courtier uh, and it's, or, and it's a new prince um, in in the Machiavellian sense. And so it's, it's advice for rule. So then to go back to the American, you know, our current context and the fact that at at each of these stages, the foundings and refoundings have been elite activity. Um, You have then a refounding in 1865 with, with the union victory in the civil war. And then I think, the next relevant one, and this is maybe directly out of Yarvin to some degree, I mean, I think he's written quite extensively on this and quite persuasively. Um, the next person to really occupy the presidency or to be a founder in, in the kind of philosophic, classic political philosophy sense is FDR. And, yeah, FDR's, and FDR's reign, and it, it's right to call it a reign, I mean, the guy was literally world emperor for a little while, right? In the Before the Cold War had really kicked off when he was the leading source of authority and charisma within the global alliance in a sense he was president of the world and i don't
0: think people understand how exceptional his role was and how exceptional post-world war ii was for america like down to the bottom the fact that we even retained any military and then went into korea was against precedent even in the civil war where we routinely disarmed in all right. sorts of ways, you know, yes, that's exactly just that. one element of it.
1: And and so, I mean, it's the water where we're swimming in, it's the air we're breathing. So it's, of course, really difficult to see because we live so fully in the shadow of what that was. And I think, you know, so, so he sets up this kind of regulatory agency slash administrative state system in DC to essentially institutionalize in and kind of Madisonian, you know, if, if Madison's institutionalizing what Washington accomplishes, Uh, FDR self-consciously is institutionalizing what he's what he accomplished and and trying to make it permanent basically and then the post-war global economic system the post-war system of alliances and and mutual defense treaties and things like that are all other ways of making that thing permanent they're all ties that bind the post-war system to itself and to the world and make make it real and I think basically the energy's run out, right? You have a kind of limited, the the charisma of a, and, and, and uh, achievement of a one particular founder can only last for so long um, and can only provide legitimacy for the institutions that they leave behind for so long. And we have kind of reached the end of the line on sort of the train that FDR set in motion. And so Yarvin certainly makes this explicit, the Claire Monsters make this explicit, a lot of people in contemporary politics are waiting for a refounding and waiting more, expl- you know, more particularly waiting for a, re- a new founder. And, and that's interesting. I mean, it's, it's this kind of revival of great man politics. I mean, Yarvin's whole thing is he's reviving Carlisle as, as a going concern within, within political philosophical discussions. Um, that was what unqualified reservations could largely be summarized as. And that still seems to be his project. then I was tying it more explicitly to Machiavelli and 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 kind of the broader question of modernity. But that's that's the sort of big open question on one side in American politics. I think is there are people who are thinking more explicitly again about foundings, founders, statesmen, presidents with a capital you know, with a capital P that you would always, you would always capitalize, right? You know, right now you only capitalize president if it's in front of the particular elected official, but the kind of, you know, really big capital P president. I think that's a big stream within the current debate. Is is that what it's going to take? Um, is that what a political, political solution? Which makes uh, sense in. because
0: so much power has been consolidated in the executive.
1: Right. Over and the if past hundred
0: years as well.
1: And it's the only sort of, the thought essentially is that it's the only sort of answer to the dilution of power that we have, right? Even as it's been centralized, the responsibility for it has been diluted. So, if you are going to then reassign human responsibility to it, if there's going to be human beings responsible for it, well, the easiest thing to do would be to assign all of that responsibility to one person. That, you know, as we've seen, it's really hard to keep committees accountable or, you know, ruled by bureaucrats accountable. And accountability really is, does seem to be like the fundamental question. I think this is, I don't know that I have a fully defined point for this, but another historical example that I think is interesting and illustrates some of the dynamic at play here. Douglas MacArthur was feared by the post-FDR establishment as being a potential Coriolanus or a potential King basically, I mean, I, I think, I don't think he would have, you know, I don't think the fear that is that he would have called himself King, but that, that, that he'd Well, the way common... he
0: flouted their authority was extreme, especially as the Pacific front sprawled out. It in right, because he was, I,
1: I think in some sense, he was a, a vestige of that particular moment that produced FDR. And, and so he still sort of re- maintained the capacity to, to do politics at that level. But then one of the things, you know, in sidelining him successfully and in the, the sort of administrations of, you know, Truman and, and, and thereafter, we have almost systematically, though I don't know how self-consciously it was, have basically made that more and more impossible for like to produce another MacArthur or to produce another FDR. So we've got this situation we found ourselves in, in which the obvious need is for a level of prudential excellence and charisma that the system itself is seems to be fighting tooth and nail to make it possible that that like the the str- the regime we're living under is doing a very good job of making it very very difficult to produce the kind of political figure that would be able to reform it um, because it's of course you know trying to protect itself like it's, you know institutions protect themselves and the incentive structures are all built for their self perpetuation And um, that was, I think, the the distinctive feature of 2015 and the Trump moment is that (laughs) turns out, you know, compared to all of the wet rags that define American political rhetoric and political life, uh, a reality TV star and and, you know, a branding expert is is enough charisma to just blow up the whole system, at least for a little, to be a really, really, really big cog in the machine, you know, not cog, but like wrench in the machine. And so it's a foretaste, I think, of, um, I mean, I think that's how everyone's treating it. It's a foretaste of what would be possible if you had someone who was equally, or, you know, as charismatic, if not more charismatic and more familiar with the ways current levers of power work. Um, I was yeah. briefly. Yeah. So
0: you wouldn't have the default to, um, I mean, I think Pedro Gonzalez has been correct in his assessment of Kushner's relationship to Trump and how that played out in a lot of ways. Maybe he oversells it a little bit, but I think it spoke to that unfamiliarity with the levers of power that you're talking about.
1: Right. And you can only trust so many people in this town. And so, you know, if you're, un- if you don't have a network of allies here already then you're gonna default to your it's a shark tank and, yeah and the familiar and that was a huge part of that dynamic and yeah it's uh i'm <laughs> i'm not optimistic in the short term i remain optimistic in the long term
0: right yeah so and i would only say that um and maybe you feel this way too and i want to just wrap up with this comment and then i have a very small question but i would say that Sounds as good. somebody who is committed to lowercase d Democracy and lowercase r republicanism, the idea of the charismatic figurehead will always make me a little bit anxious. <laughs> right,
1: and <laughs> you it, know. no, I mean, and it should. And the question, the question at play there is: Has technology made it impossible to go back? Right? Is small r republican? Is small r republicanism and small d democracy? Are those not, in some sense, or like historically, have they? perhaps only flourished at a certain scale and at a certain pace. Mm -hmm. And
0: And in a certain material productive relationship, right? To put a little Marxist spin on it. Like these were social technologies Mm -hmm. and we now have physically new social technologies that repattern our discourse and reorganize it in ways we're still figuring out.
1: Right. And so it's, you know, it seems to be a choice between rule by technicians or rule by a president, maybe, I don't know.
0: (laughs) Capital P. Yeah. So um, I'll end with just my last thing. What have you been reading lately? And do you have any recommendations for our listeners?
1: I have been reading way too many things um, for diversion. I've been reading a, I'm forgetting the title right now, but it's a biography of David Douglas, who was the naturalist who accounted for most of the Pacific Northwest's where I'm, where I'm from, the Pacific Northwest's uh, flora and fauna. So lots of things named after him, like the Douglas fir. Um, but he also did, you know, named a lot of the animals and other plant life out there. Um, still picking my way through Heidegger's basic writings. That's been an ongoing project forever. I just kind of dip in, dip out whenever I'm feeling motivated in particular. What else is going on? I, I mean, I'm thinking of the massive pile of unfinished books floating around at home and recommendations let's see i mean i just reread the abolition of man by lewis and that's just worth revisiting i I don't care if you've read it five times read it again it's just so incisive and actually i think this is another thing lewis gets insufficient credit as a student of philosophy i think people just associate him with christian apologetics and children's literature when he spent much of his career, even before he was a literary professor uh, as a philosophy professor. And yes, he's not writing academically. And, and you know, in some sense, After Virtue is a more systematic philosophic text, but I think he writes with a sort of poetical depth that he's always saying more than you thought he was saying uh, and, and Abolition of Man warrants um i think constant revisiting for that particular question that that the the more you bring to the table the more outside reading you've been done doing the more prepared you are to encounter that text the more you'll get out of it and then it's it's fictional corollary which is a beautiful you know not beautiful it's terrifying but an excellent illustration of these very questions that we've been discussing is that hideous strength which is the third book in his space trilogy and um was inspired in its form by his friend, Charles Williams, who wrote these kinds of supernatural thrillers. But it really gets at this question of what, what does rule by technocrats actually look like? And what does it mean when man's growing power over nature means some some scientists have more power over the rest of us than we have over ourselves.
0: Well, fantastic. Micah, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I had a blast. I hope you did too. And perhaps we can do this again sometime.
1: Absolutely. This was great, Emmett. Thank you very much.
0: All right, guys, stay safe out there and we'll see you next week.